want to add to what's already been said as far as a welcome and coming this morning. And we're going to be uh, starting a new book this morning, the book of Jonah, which is going to be a little bit challenging to find in Scripture. It's towards the latter part of the Old Testament. If you're using the Bible from the pew, it's page 726. And if you're using the Bible, I am. It's 953. <laughs> but, uh, but don't be ashamed to use the table of contents. Uh, this is one of the smaller books and not very many large books around it to, to provide markers. So the book of Jonah will be in that the next four weeks. And so this morning I'm just going to read the, the whole of Jonah chapter 1 because it provides the backdrop for what we'll discuss this morning. And so, now that you're seated and comfortable, I'll ask you to stand, and we'll read from Jonah chapter 1. And this is what it says. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought to us, or perhaps the God will give a thought to us so that we may not perish. And when they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then he said to them, then they said to him, I'm sorry, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What's your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, <clears throat> What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. 
And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I'll invite you to pray with me before we dive into chapter 1. Lord, we should never come to your word lightly or just skipping into it as if, if it's, as if it has no genuine bearing on our lives. You've laid it out for us with pictures and symbols and stories and all of those things to grab our attention so that we hear your voice, so that we understand you, understand your ways, and so that we understand ourselves and understand our ways. Lord, after 167 hours or so since we met last Sunday, a lot of things have occurred. None of them that were beyond your knowing, all of them preparing us in some way for what we hear this morning. And so now in these moments, I pray that you would take your word, and I pray that you would apply it to our hearts and to the situations of our lives. And I pray that we would be humble and receptive to what you have for us. And I pray that you would guide in every aspect, both in my speaking and in the hearing. But by the goodness of your spirit, I pray that you would apply it in the ways that it needs to be applied. So Lord, we ask for help, knowing that there's nowhere else we can turn and no place better to go. And so I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The story of Jonah is an often told story from a little red book. Most of us heard the story of Jonah from our youth. We heard some fashion of it, even if we didn't know the whole of the story. We at least heard parts of it about Jonah being followed, swallowed up by a big fish. But as we'll see, hopefully today and in the ensuing weeks, that there's a whole lot more going on in the book of Jonah than just Jonah being swallowed by a whale. And in fact, if we're not careful, the the story of the great fish obscures the point of the book because the clear point of the book is not a great fish, but it's the great grace of God. And so that is what needs to be discovered. The aim of the fish is to so implant a thought in our minds that it directs us continually back to the God of great grace. I want to lay out just uh, a couple of things as we're beginning. And the first is that when you come to the book of Jonah, if you've not read it recently, I hope that you'll be able to do that over the, the next month as we work our way through this book. You'll see if you're using the Pew Bible that it's a very short book. The first half of the book's on one page, and the last next half of the book is on the other page. So it's very short. If you listen to it, it probably takes 10 or 12 minutes to listen to, so you could usefully use your time driving to work or school or wherever you're going and listen to the book and listen to it uh, a number of times and get the sense of what the book is saying so we don't get just stuck on the fish. But as you read the book and as you listen to the book, you're going to find that the book has some literary um, ways of communicating in there that, that draw our attention. The book is, first of all, is full of irony. So what you think would happen is not exactly what happens. And, and by that method, the Lord calls our attention to some things. And so as you read the book, you're reading about a prophet who disobeys. But you're also reading about idol worshipers who end up worshiping God. God tells the prophet to go one way. He goes another. 
Just when you think Jonah is dead, he lives. And just when you think that Jonah has repented, he gripes at God. So God uses nature throughout the book to make his point. He uses a storm. He uses a fish that we'll talk about this morning. But later in the book, he uses a plant, and then he uses a worm, and then he uses a scorching wind to emphasize truths that we need to know. And so if I can just lay out the, the overall view of what happens inside of the book of Jonah, it's, it's very clear. If you read with me at verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. And then if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, notice the repetition. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so it's very clear that there's an instruction that is given, and that the exact same in instruction is repeated at chapter 3. And so at chapter 1, we see Jonah's disobedience. In chapter 2, we hear his grateful prayer. Chapter 3, we see Jonah's obedience as opposed to his disobedience. But then in chapter 4, we hear his angry prayer as opposed to his grateful prayer of chapter 2. So there's a lot that is going on inside of the book and a lot of things that we need to pay attention to. So we don't want to get distracted by the fish, even though that's a, a major point inside of the book. But we do want to see the whole of the book. So if we dive in just briefly here at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 that I just read to you. God instructs. There's a clear instruction that Jonah is supposed to rise out of where he is and head to Nineveh, a city that is some 500 miles away. But nonetheless, God has a message to give to these people. And Jonah is supposed to rise up, go to Nineveh, deliver this message that God has given to him to deliver so that's the first thing God instructs. The second thing we find in verse three, verse 3, and that is that Jonah runs. Because it says to us, arise, go to Nineveh. I'm sorry, I read that verse, but verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So Jonah runs. Now, I need to do a little bit of a subset here before we get into the text. Because I think it's important for understanding the book of Jonah and also for understanding our lives. We're getting ready inside of the book of Jonah to go into a storm. But I need to make it very clear how storms play out inside of Scripture and how they play out inside of our lives. The first point of this sub-point is this. that some endure hardship because they have chosen to follow after God? If you remember from the Gospels, the stories about Jesus' life, in Matthew, Mark, and in John, all three of those authors record a Jesus with his disciples. And he is with them, and he tells them, get in a boat and go from this side of the, the sea over to the other side of the sea. And so that was the instructions that he gave to them. But Mark makes it very plain that they, when they were going was in the middle of the night, so at the darkest time of the night. John makes it very clear that they were about halfway across the sea when the storm arose. Matthew makes it clear that they were both in the dark and in the middle of the sea when this storm came up. And so this storm comes to them not because they have been disobedient to God, but because they have been obedient. 
And so some storms come into our life because we are following after God. And for whatever reason, the storm comes and the gospels play that out. But, but you understand what I'm saying, that there are some times that we go through storms precisely because we have obeyed our Savior. But it's also, point two, some endure hardship because the world is broken. Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, in one of his poems, wrote, Into each life some rain must fall. And that's a phrase that we repeat to one another from time to time. That phrase comes from the lips of Jesus, or it's distilled from that at least, where Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, It rains on the just and the unjust. And there is some hardship that we endure in our lives simply because we are broken humans inside of a broken world. And so sometimes sicknesses arrive or setbacks arrive that have nothing particularly to do with following after God, but simply because we're in a broken place and we're broken people ourselves. And so we're going to endure some of the, the difficulties of life. But the third thing is this. Some endure hardship because they have disobeyed. This is not something that we like to talk about in the church setting. We're so afraid of going out on a limb on this topic that we never climb the tree. But the reality is that sometimes the suffering that goes on in our lives is a direct result of our disobedience. Sometimes we endure hardship not because we were faithful servants, not because we were simply part of a broken world, but because we have chosen to walk away from the one who redeemed us. This is fairly evident throughout Scripture. We could appeal to our own lives and to our experience and probably find it to be true, but it's also inside of Scripture. You think about in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul is talking about partaking of the Lord's Supper And he says, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have even died. Acts chapter 9, God plainly tells the man who would later become the apostle Paul, it is hard for you to kick against me. Rebellion is a hard path. Disobedience is a difficult road. Now, I need to say here at the end that if you are in hardship because of sin, God will make it very plain what the sin is. As we read through the story of Job, Jonah was very clear that the cause of his hardship was his own disobedience. He admitted as much, as you noticed as we were reading through the text. And there are different types of people, and it depends on your your personality makeup. And some people have very active consciences. And so when they go through a hardship, they, they roll over and over again in their mind, what have I done? What have I done? How have I offended God? How have I been disobedient? And... The reality is that if, if we have sinned, God will make it plain to us. That is the role of the Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin. And so I would encourage you, if you're one of those people who, who gets caught inside of a, an active or overactive conscience, stuck constantly trying to figure out how you have offended God, rest easy if God doesn't point out or clarify what the, what the sin is. But there's another subset of us who who just stubbornly go ahead and never consider the fact that maybe the hardships that I'm enduring are precisely because I'm walking in disobedience. And that's what the story of Jonah is about. God said, 
arise and go to Nineveh. Verse 3 says, Jonah arose but went to Tarshish. Nineveh was some 500 miles to the east by land. Tarshish was some 2,000 miles back to the west by the sea. And in Jonah's mind, though we're not told this, I think we can infer it from, from other places in the Old Testament, his disobedience was justified. Because isn't our disobedience always justified? We find a reason why it makes sense to walk against what God has said. For Jonah, it was likely this, that the Assyrians, they were not yet the full national power or international power that they would become, but they were on the rise. And they were a cruel people. And so when they would conquer a city, they would stack up skulls of the people they had killed. And they would do other things that... um, you can read about it, but it would clearly offend our sensibilities, the way that they treated people. And when you do, when they've done the archaeological digs, they've actually gone back to Nineveh and dug up some of the things and, and the tells, you know, the little carvings that they, that they did back in that day. They've read some of those, those tells that were in, um, in Nineveh, not at Jonah's time, but some 50, 75 years later. And And these stories that these pictures are telling are are of when Assyria invaded the nation of Israel and when they took down the king Hezekiah of Israel. And so in Jonah's mind, no doubt he tried to work his way through. Well, these people do not deserve any kind of grace from the Lord. They don't deserve any kind of merciful message. And I would like to point my finger at Jonah and say, Jonah, you're just a a cold-hearted man, incompassionate hard to deal with, not understanding the hardships or the the need that people have for God's grace. But then I began to look inside of myself and I realized very quickly that I want to experience the grace of God. But I want my enemies to experience the justice of God. I want God to deal with me kindly and gently But I want them to get what they deserve. The just desserts that they have earned should not be taken away. And I know I'm that way inside because when I am told to forgive, as God has forgiven me, I balk. I'm much more likely to head to Joppa and purchase some ticket to go somewhere that will allow me not to forgive. I've chosen the sin of forgiveness, but you can fill in the blank. That is what we do with our sin, is it not? We find some way to justify how we are, should be allowed to do this thing or how we should be allowed to carry on with this behavior. And we fail to see that the hardship that we are enduring is because we have walked away from God. We're like Jonah in our disobedience. We always try to find ways to justify how we want to act. But maybe we're not as bold as Jonah We don't go the opposite direction. Have you ever given God the cold shoulder? It's not that we're out and out rebelling against him, at least in our own minds. But we stop talking to him. Stop listening to him. Too timid to travel to Tarshish. We just simply try to ignore him and act as if he is not there and as if he does not see 
Psalm 139 talks about the great comfort that we can have because we are never out of God's presence. But what is designed to be great comfort can become a great imposition when we're trying to ignore God. He sees, he knows, not just the actions, but what is going on in our hearts and what is going on in our minds. So God instructs, Jonah runs, but then verses 5 through 10, or 4 through 10, God acts. In verse 4 it says, but the, Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind against the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship might, was threatened to break up. We cannot escape this. It's very plain, very clear, that the misfortune befalling Jonah was orchestrated, designed, and sent by God as a result of his disobedience. And it is a grave miscalculation to think that God sits idly by while we persist in disobedience. That's a grave miscalculation. To think that we can sin without any sort of consequence. Sin without it affecting the peace of our lives. Think about this. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he used all of his royal resources to silence any kind of negative press. He felt like he had it covered. But when you read through all the complexity David used to cover his tracks, everything that he did throughout um, that chapter, chapter 2 Samuel chapter 11, 27 verses long. The first 26 verses are talking about how David went way out of his way to try to cover his tracks, to cover his sin. All the complexity he used was boiled down at the very last verse when God had been pushed out as far as he could have been pushed in that chapter. The very last thing that gets said in that chapter is simply this. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God knows Despite our machinations, the things that we try to do to cover our sin, to make it look better, to dress it up, the Lord knows. I think that seven of the most sobering words come to us from the book of Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Now, why is God so harsh with sin? Why is he so insistent? Because God loves us too much to allow disobedient believers to live in peace. He will not let us do that. In this story, God got the attention of the sailors. God had hurled the great wind with such a force that it created this storm. It created this tempest and the ship was threatened to break apart. These seasoned mariners began to fear for their lives. They tried every nautical skill that they had at their disposal and they were reduced to praying. They tried everything first, but now that since that didn't work, they cried out to their gods. That didn't work either, so they decided to start hurling the cargo overboard. After they've done all this, now they find Jonah asleep down in the ship. And I think that is telling for us. If we rely on good fortune to determine whether we are following God or not, we can surely deceive ourselves. Think about this. Jonah was able to get a ticket to Joppa. He was able to find a boat. He was able to afford a ticket. 
he was able to fall asleep on the boat. And if we're not careful, we'll see the means of escaping God as evidence of his favor. Because when we're going in the opposite direction of where God is sending us, the devil's always glad to provide a ship to help us along the way. And some people choose to determine the will of God by whether or not life is easy. But the devil will be sure to make it easy. And so we don't want to put confidence in the fact that we're just, our lives are, everything falls into place serendipitously, that everything just works as it should. When the sailors go down to the ship, they find, or the captain finds Jonah asleep, wakes him up and says, hey, you need to cry out to your God. Our gods aren't working very well. And so the sailors set about in verses 7 through 10 to find the cause of the problem. And it says that they cast lots. Now, that shows up a lot in the Bible, and it's a little unclear how that worked. It was a way that was used to make decisions in that day. It was something like flipping a coin or drawing the short straw or, or whatever. It's not how God prescribed to, find, uh, to discern what is right. But surely God wasn't absent in the casting of these stones, casting of these lots. Behind this activity stood God. And whatever the mechanism was, it was one more narrowing of Jonah's escape. He thought he was clean out of Joppa, and the storm comes. He thought he was okay because he could go down into the bottom of the boat. He thought he was fine because he could sleep. But then these lots begin to be cast, and it becomes more and more obvious that Jonah is the problem. And so the sailors begin to talk with him, and they ask him some very good questions. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing? But it culminates with this question that we see in verse 10. What have you done? What have you done? And if we're assailed by storms, that is a very good question. It might not be the last question that we ask of ourselves, but it might ought to be one of the first. What have I done? How am I behaving? Am I walking in disobedience? What have you done? Have I arrived at the difficulties in my life or the storms in my life? Have I arrived here because I'm running from God? And it's clear that's not the only reason we're in storms, but it's certainly one of the reasons that we find ourselves in storms. I want to hasten to add here that our sin doesn't affect us only. We say frequently around here that the Christian life is a community project, but so is sin. The wounds of sin are not only felt by the offending party. Our unyielding hearts impact our orbit, the people in our orbit. A husband cannot sin without it also wounding the wife. A wife cannot sin without it also wounding the husband. Parents cannot sin without it affecting the children. And children cannot sin without it affecting the parents. And every one of us individuals cannot sin without it affecting our friends, without it affecting those people in our workplace, without it affecting the people who are around us. Because sin always has consequence, and it never remains only to the individual who committed the sin. The closer people are to us, the more they're affected by our sin. Which means that the people I love most 
are the people who are most affected by my sin. The famous sin of David that I mentioned earlier is enough to convince us of this. It says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, whoever covers their sins will not prosper. And the storm that comes after us will affect everyone who is in our boat. God instructs, Jonah runs, God acts. And in verses 11 through 17, Jonah sinks. The sailors asked Jonah, what do we need to do to solve this storm, to get rid of this storm? He said, well, you're going to have to hurl me into the ocean. They didn't want to do that, so they tried to avoid uh, uh, the advice of Jonah. But verse 4 tells us that the, the great wind created this great tempest. Verses 11 and 13 says that the the storm became more and more tempestuous and continued to intensify. The reality is that if we're walking in rebellion against God, we shouldn't anticipate that our lives are going to get any easier. The only way that our lives will get easier is if God leaves us alone. The sailors are careful. They're not wanting to throw Jonah overboard. But eventually they feel they have no choice but to hurl him into the sea. And so they do, and the evidence that Jonah was the issue is that the sea calmed immediately. But what about our man Jonah? Maybe more importantly for this morning, how about us? The scripture's pretty plain using these words that Jonah went down into Joppa. He went down into the ship. He went down into the bottom of the ship. He went down into the sea, and now he goes down into the belly of the whale. I have a question for us this morning. Have you ever been thrown overboard? I have. I've been chased by storms that have my name on them. I've been pitched headlong into the sea. And whether it's been my willful, willful disobedience or through giving God my, the cold shoulder, or even if it's simply because I'm a broken man living in a broken world, I've been thrown into the waves of an angry sea. And I've sunk down like Jonah. And I'm convinced that many of you have as well. I've sunk down like Jonah, not knowing which way was up. All I can see is Darkness. I don't know up from down. I'm too too weak to swim, too weighted down to float, too disoriented to survive. And then I get swallowed by a fish. And there in the belly of the whale, I feel the seaweed clinging to my soul. I feel the breath of death in my face. My sins accuse me. My guilt makes the darkness even darker. I have no footing. I have no bearing. I have no hope. What are we Jonah supposed to do when we find ourselves thrown out of the boat and swallowed by the fish? When we have slighted the one who saved us and when we've ignored the one who bought us, what are we to do? I know that I'm using imagination here. 
But if you remember when filmmakers are shooting underwater, not when they're really deep into the water, but when they're underneath the water and they aim their cameras up towards, upward towards the surface. And you can see sometimes just the barest of light at the surface. If we're in the waves and we're in the whale, if we can just still ourselves just long enough in the darkness, we can hear the words from the pen of Matthew that came from the lips of Jesus. When Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm stuck. I've got nowhere to go. I look up and I see the barest of light up there and I hear that as Jonah was in the belly of the earth, so must the Son of Man, Jesus himself, be three days in the earth. And there's the barest of splashes at the surface and a shadowy figure begins to descend. And Christ Jesus, even though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as with God as a thing to be grasped. But he came down into our stormy seas. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he came down into the darkness of our watery grave. And being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he came down ever closer and closer to us. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He came down. He came all the way down, even to death on the cross, as the one who knew no sin became sin for us. And I didn't read the other verses there in the book of Matthew, but it says that someone greater than Jonah is here. And if you with me are down in the well and you're trying to find your way, we look through the darkness and we see the one who descended and we see that he is not like us. His character is pristine. His obedience is perfect. His care is infinite. One greater than Jonah has arrived with me in the belly of the whale. We peer through the whirling water. We're desperate. And we see the one who is now with us is not like us. His hope is sure. His confidence is unshaken. His forgiveness is certain. One greater than Jonah is here. The Redeemer has come. So what do we do now? We listen to his voice. Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But we don't have any strength. We've exhausted ourselves fighting against a self-inflicted storm. We've been battling the insides of a whale. We don't have any reserves that will allow us to swim our way to the surface. We don't have any more breath in our lungs. We are feeling feeble, having spent ourselves resisting God. What can we do? But then we hear Jesus speaking again as a gentle and forgiving father. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. And he takes our arms and he wraps them around his neck. As a young child who rides a father's back. And he begins to ascend. Us riding with him. Up out of the belly of the whale. Up out of the darkness of the sea. Up out of the swirling waters. Up towards the light. Up, up, up. 
And if you know the song, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Christ arose. And we can raise with him. I've used imagination and allegory to try to paint a truth that is more real than gravity. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Whoever believes in him will never perish, but instead will have eternal life. If we confess our sins, he is both faithful and just, and he will forgive our sins. God can remove our sins from us, removing them as far as the east is from the west. Christ lifts sinners out of watery graves and makes saints of them. The storms do not have to have the last word. Cling to the one who is greater than Jonah. But what if I don't even have strength to hold on? When I fear that my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through the life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight, he will hold me fast. The chorus once more, just so it sinks all the way to the depths of our heart. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. I don't know if you're on the boat. I don't know if you're feeling the storm. I don't know if you're in the whale. I do know the forgiving Savior will hold us fast. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord, every part of our lives needs to find its resolution in you as the great God who saves and forgives and leads us in the right direction. Thank you for rescuing us out of the belly of the whale, up through the darkness, up through the swirling seaweed, up through all of that mess into the glorious light. Thank you for translating us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I pray that you help us to trust in the work of your cross and believe that Christ will do all that he has said he will do. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.